two, patients at risk, a discussion of the dangers that patients face when physicians are replaced with non-physician practitioners. I'm your host and the co-author of the book, Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare, Dr. Rebecca Bernard. I do have a personal note on the recording quality of these two podcasts with Dr. Kermit Jones. Unfortunately, my microphone wire was loose, so some of the audio on my end was distorted. So I did have to go back and re-record some of that audio. There were no changes made to the content whatsoever. However, you may notice some variation of the audio quality throughout these two podcasts. My apologies for that, and thanks for listening. Before we start today's show, let's talk about this week's sponsor, Deputy. At your practice, what happens when staff call out sick? How much time does it take to find replacements who can fill in? If you need to cancel appointments because you're short-staffed, what does that cost your practice? Deputy is a simple app that's helped more than 250,000 workplaces tackle this problem. Deputy makes it easy to schedule staff in line with patient demand, communicate schedules with your team, and instantly find replacements when someone calls out sick. To learn more and to try Deputy out for free, go to drpodcastnetwork.com forward slash deputy. And now back to our show. Today, I am so excited to be joined again by Dr. Kermit Jones. He's an internal medicine physician and an attorney, and he has just announced his run for the 4th Congressional District in California for the House of Representatives. Dr. Jones, welcome back and tell us all about your run for Congress. So I'm running for California's 4th Congressional District for the House of Representatives in the uh, November 2022 election. Currently, uh, it's you know been held by an incumbent for the last, since 2009. This is a district that runs from uh, South Tahoe down to Yosemite right now, but it's going to go through redistricting. So there's a substantial possibility that it's going to change. Um, in terms of the district, uh, like I said previously, the number of primary care physicians per 100,000 ranges from about zero per 100,000 in Alpine to about 80 to 90 in El Dorado. Um, And they have significant challenges in terms of some of the veterans in the district that need primary care, care that people will need uh, given the fires and uh, many of the things that affect the air quality uh, and the economic uh, base of the district as well in terms of attracting people there to generate jobs. So this is a run on the federal level, not the state level, right? I would be a representative at the federal level. Be one of the yeah, one of the, the 435 members of uh, Congress. So I would be one of the California delegation there. And that's why for me, this is so important because um, there are many great people that are serving at the state level. But for healthcare, if we really want to move the needle, like we were talking um, in the previous episode, it takes changes in our Medicare and Medicaid policy and a lot of our federal incentives. And that's why I'm going to DC to do that. Now, it's not that common to jump right into the political arena on the federal level, is it? Don't most people usually start with local elections or state elections and then move up into federal elections? No, that's a great question. A lot of people um, will, let's say, go for a lower level um, office, either it's you know mayor or county supervisor or state assembly or state senate. Um, and that would be an option, um, but I'm not a politician. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a physician. You know, I've seen over 20,000 patients, whether it was in the military, as a, as a Navy doctor attached to a Marine helicopter squadron, uh, whether it was at federally, federally qualified health centers um, or, you know, at larger institutions, uh, academic institutions. And so what I felt was if I wanted to be a politician, I would do that kind of step-by-step process. But I want to be a change maker. You know, I want to be someone who takes experience that people like you and I have had and a lot of our listeners 
go to Washington, D.C., and help formulate our legislation so that we get better policies on the other side of that so that we can see our patients and the ways that we were trained. Uh, and our patients have higher satisfaction. We don't have as many physicians leaving primary care like we do right now. I really love that. And especially considering that there are really not too many physicians in public office, especially on a congressional level. Isn't that true? They're not a lot. No, I don't have the exact number, but I mean, we have a few, uh, like an emergency medicine doctor who's in, uh, primary care doctor as well. Um, I think there may be 17 or 18 either uh, doctors and or nurses um, that are in Congress right now. So when you look at the, um, the numbers, I mean, that's less than 5%. So for a body that really determines, you know, what we do from a healthcare standpoint, you know, whether it's CHIP or all the other programs, less than 5% of the people there have any real direct experience taking care of patients. Yeah, we're definitely underrepresented. Now, I know that for a lot of physicians, I've heard from some that would love to consider running for political office or getting more involved politically. But of course, the idea is very daunting. I'm sure it's very expensive. And just there's the question of like, how do you even start that kind of process? Can you talk us through a little bit of that for any of our listeners that are interested in maybe entering into politics in the future? Definitely, definitely. Um, it is a very daunting process. In California, on average, it took, uh, I think, about $7 million to flip a seat, you know, go from red to blue or blue to red in terms of Republican or Democrat or whatever. In 2018, when I talk to physicians, because you do have some physicians that are you know, hardcore uh, one party or the other, they're either hardcore Republican or hardcore Democrat, I really try to get them to understand that if we get more physicians in Congress, they will advocate for physicians. Uh, you know, they, they, we should not be ideologues in this. Uh, there's certain things that whatever your political party would benefit us from the business aspect, from the direct patient care aspect, from the reimbursement aspect. Um, and those types of things, you know, should be things that we can agree on because we've all took the same pathology and physiology classes and, you know, all had to you know, spend 100 hours a week on surgery rotations and stuff like that. So we have that community together. Um, it takes a lot just to be completely transparent with you for three reasons. One, you know, it takes a lot of time away from your family and advocating uh, with people and talking to them and making the case. Two, about 80% of the time, the incumbent usually can stay in office because you have to raise you know, millions of dollars to get your ads out there and stuff like that. And then three, quite frankly, um, the most challenging part is you have to convince people to invest in your campaign. And, you know, I think for physicians, that is a bit of a struggle because we spent so long uh, being trained to think about, let's say, our jobs and healthcare in a certain way that, you know, to talk to a physician and say, look, this is why a $250 or $500 investment in my campaign is very, very important. In many instances, it's not that they can't afford it. It's that they don't see the value add from that um, in terms of advocacy. You know, I had a, a very long but not fruitful discussion with uh, my residency training program, you know, and I, I told them, look, you know, I, I trained here. This is why I think this is important. And, and I got very few of them to buy into the idea, even though uh, a lot of them were very disappointed with, I think, uh, the relationship uh, that was established between the federal government and a lot of these um, institutions that are training people in terms of reimbursement. But, you know, I continue to make the case that unless we are at the table unless we're supporting each other, uh, getting each other in office and listening to each other, um, we will continue to have worse outcomes. It's, it's not really that good an outcome to have physicians work 60 to 70 hours a week, no matter what your reimbursement is, pay $400,000 a year for med school, uh, pay a certain amount in malpractice, 
And when you calculate it out, you're actually making 25 to 30% less per year than you think you are. And then spending so much time away from your family um, that your quality of life is bad. Uh, your relationships are, are disrupted. Um, and you don't spend the time that, that you would expect to spend with your family and nurturing them. And those are the types of things I want to fight for. Well, it's, I know that you have to be really passionate about wanting to do this to be able to, to sacrifice. You have a, I'm sure, a very busy practice. You have lots of other things on the table. And so to take that time away and that financial investment, obviously you're passionate about. Would you say that fundraising is probably one of the hardest aspects of running for office? I think so, because you have to constantly stay passionate about what you believe in, no matter how many no's you get, no matter how many people decide not to call you back, uh, you know, how many, no matter how many people, you know, are kind of mean to you. I believe in this. I really do, because I realized uh, a few years back that if I continued to see patients every day for the rest of my life, I was not going to be able to have the impact to the federal level so that I could actually see the patients the way I know they need to be seen. You know, it's it's not okay that the way things are, are now, I have to see some patients in like eight minutes, you know, that I'm spending more time feeding the electronic health record, which in theory is a good idea, uh, you know, than I do spending time listening to my patient. You know, electronic health record is good, but if an electronic health record costs a healthcare system $100 million and a healthcare system spends that much money on it, then the decisions that those administrators make on the other side of that is, well, now I can't hire more physicians. I can't hire more nurses because I have to make the value add from this EHR and try to get as much reimbursement as I can out of it. Um, so, you know, for me, we need people that have had our experiences at the table to make sure that um, we get what we need. And I'll put, you know, in, in the chat and, and share with people uh, my donation link. You know, even though I'm running as a Democrat, like I said, um, I support uh, moderate uh, policies that uh, go uh, across the table. And, and I will, I tell people I need their help in this and I need them to uh, tell me their issues uh, so we can get those issues on the table in Congress. I think that it's so very important. I definitely want to share that link. It's interesting that right now we're, we're having this podcast about political affiliations or just politics in general, because recently somebody got a hold of the, our Wikipedia page. I think they even created it for Physicians for Patient Protection. And of course, these are people who don't agree with our position and they would like to see our organization not exist and discredit us. So they wrote some things that were not true about uh, indicating that our organization was an extremely conservative right wing uh, and that our leadership is conservative. And actually, the truth is that our organization is nonpartisan. We have board members on both sides of the political spectrum. And I even wrote a blog about this because we keep trying to correct the Wikipedia page and it keeps getting reverted back to the original wording, which is not true. So I even wrote a blog just to clarify and clear the air that I'm not a conservative. I'm actually not a liberal. I'm a moderate. I'm really a no party affiliation voter uh, who happens to sometimes have to register Democrat and sometimes register Republican, depending on if I want to vote in the Florida primaries, because you have to be registered in a political party to vote in the primaries. I've actually donated political funding and to campaigns, representatives, both Republican and Democrat, depending on their stance on various issues. And I think it's really important that 
we not limit ourselves to Republican or Democrat or conservative or liberal, but actually look at different politicians, representative stances on issues that are important to us, and then vote or donate based on those rather than strict ideologies, because really things are not black and white, right? There are shades of gray, there are areas that we can agree on, some things we disagree on, but we need to look at what's really most important. And as physicians, that may be looking at issues that relate to the care of our patients. Yeah, same here. I mean, I tell people there are three things I think we all have in common. One, we need to simplify our um, healthcare system. You know, it, the fact that you have so many people that have to calculate claims or over 7,000 claims, I mean, that's ridiculous whether you're a Democrat or Republican. You know, we really need to, too, um, pay the value that physicians are, are worth in our, in our society. You know, we have a lot of corporate medicine models now that try to replace physicians with other people. Um, but again, like I said, they, they don't have the training in and of themselves. And if you do that, um, then you do end up in a situation where people are not getting the care that they need. And then three, you know, we really have to get past, um, you know, some of these, I think, divisive fights that at the end of the day, leave a lot of people behind. You know, I had a conversation with a gentleman explaining to him why whatever system we ended up with, you know, whether they wanted the system we have now or, you know, a public option or Medicare for all, whatever that is, that system has to be flexible enough to take care of complex patients and not try to encourage those patients to to, uh, no longer fight and give up care because it's quote unquote cheaper for the system. You know, I had a patient once that was 95 years old he was um, on the presidential detail for Harry Truman. Uh, you know, this was an interesting patient I had at the Naval Hospital. And unfortunately, you know, he had a very serious illness. Um, but he told me uh, with that illness, he said, you know, even at 95, I want to live. You know, I don't want to die. And that was shocking because a lot of people, we've kind of gone into this, I think, mindset in medicine that we try to encourage people. Well, you get to a certain age, you know, you should you know, sign this paperwork, you should, you know, deny yourself expensive care. I mean, that's not right. You know, we need to, as a society, figure out how we take care of people, keep them healthy. And I think we have tools to do that. We have um, diagnostics that are coming out there that can diagnose uh, cancer DNA and blood before there's even a stage one. You know, we need to use, uh, you know, AI and these other types of tools to disrupt our healthcare system so that people can get a lot of the care they need at home as opposed to being expensive nursing care uh, facilities. And we also, like I said, need to value the place that primary care doctors and other doctors place you know, in our, in our um, healthcare system uh, and no longer uh, treat them as assembly line workers, but actually meaningful participants. You know, I think one of the biggest challenges that we face as physicians is this sense that you know, is it even something we can fix? Are the issues too big? Are the problems too great? You know, sometimes we kind of get this learned helplessness and and it comes from a real place, from a sense of you feel like you're trying to make a difference and you're trying, but you're just not getting anywhere or the process is so slow. And doctors, you know, we, we definitely like to talk about the challenges that we're experiencing and express our concerns, but sometimes we just don't take any action. Again, maybe because we just feel like maybe we can't make a difference. So what makes you think you can make a difference? And what can you tell us as physicians to help us get past that sense of that everything is futile and what's the point? Let me tell you a story. I was just at a shelter in my district uh, at Green Valley uh, Church for people that were 
their homes were threatened by a, a big fire that we have in our district. And I was the only doctor there that particular day. And I was humbled by the reception I got from people looking at their wounds, uh, you know, making sure that their medications were correct, answering their questions. Uh, and I felt like I was making a difference. Uh, one person can make a difference. You can make a difference, you know, whether you're a, a you know individual person at a shelter or you know seeing patients and trying to get uh, pediatric patients the uh, vaccines that they need to stay safe. You can make a difference if you're going to run for office. Uh, you can make a difference in your medical society. But the same thing that I think applies to everything else applies to this, which is you have to carve out the time to do it. But when I was in Iraq. Um, I remember reading an article about a gentleman uh, who was, you know, being asked a question by a reporter about democracy. And this gentleman, you know, said, and I think the reporter had asked him, like, hey, you know, now that you have democracy, uh, you know, what are you going to do? What do you think? What does that mean to you? And the guy said, you know, to me, democracy means that I'm going to vote for my uncle because he can get my uh, my toilet fixed, right? Um, and so, you know, when you looked at this, when I looked at the situation, you know, I thought, myself, this is a situation where, you know, this individual and these people have maybe a different idea of how to participate in society and make things work. You know, in the United States, we have a participatory democracy where the people that show up uh, are the people that get represented. The people that show up are the ones that get, uh, you know, I guess the spoils, the benefits of the democracy. And if you don't show up, you don't get it. Same thing applies to our profession. If we persistently do not show up, or rather consistently do not show up, then we will continue to get less and less of what we deserve and what we need in order to actually see our patients. So you know, I employ people uh, to really get into the game uh, and fight for their rights as hard as they can, uh, because that's what I want to do uh, for us and for our patients and our ability to do our job. I think that's just so inspiring and it's so important that we all do whatever we can to make our world a better place and of course make our profession a better a better place to work in and to advocate for our patients. In our last few minutes, and I really want to thank you for all the time you've given to me. I know it's a lot because you're very busy. You have your family and you have this run for Congress. But I just wanted to take a few minutes to talk about your mom because I was reading on your website about how your mom was such an important, has been such an important a role model and figure for you in your life and so influential. And a lot of things about your mom kind of re resonated with me because your mom was a registered nurse and mine was too, actually. And your mom struggled with some serious health conditions that had a major impact on your thinking about health care and on your plans to run for political office. And actually, my mom also struggled with medical conditions. She actually had severe bipolar disorder, and it was really hard to get her access to health care, especially when I was young and we lived in a rural underserved area. But even beyond that, uh, it was a lot... It, it took a lot for me to try to get her help, and I was just a medical student at the time. And going through that experience really had a major impact on my development, of course, as a person, but also as a physician, the way that I think about the healthcare system, the way I think about my patients. And I know it certainly does for you as well. And for you, it's even gone so far as to motivate you to make real change for as far as running for federal office so that you can institute 
policies that will make it easier for patients like your mom and my mom to get health care. Can you tell me a little bit about your mom and your experiences with her medical conditions? No, thank you, Rebecca. I mean, for me, talking about the influence that my mom had on me is, is one of the hardest things for me to do because I know I wouldn't be you know, a professional. I wouldn't be a physician. Uh, I wouldn't have had any of the uh, opportunities that I've had in my life, you know, but for her love and, and push of me to do these things. My mom was a nurse for 30 years. Um, before that, she was a legal secretary, worked very hard, um, you know, raised us mostly by herself on a, a small farm in Michigan. She did have uh, my dad there as well, but because of the type of job he had, he worked uh, remotely for about a decade. We were uh, only seeing him mostly on weekends, but she instilled in me by seeing the relationship she had with her patients, the desire to take care of people compassionately um, and try to make their lives better. Um, my mom wanted to go to medical school, but then after having uh, my brother and I decided that you know, it would be uh, easier in the early 80s for us to, for her to continue you know, as a nurse and then also to give me the tools I needed to become a doctor. She, in uh, April 2018, was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer, even though she didn't smoke and she took very good care of herself, you know, never missed a doctor's appointment, uh, was very careful with her blood pressure, you know, tried to eat right. And what that taught me was that you can do everything right in our system and still end up uh, with a bad deck. And what shocked me more than that, to be completely honest with you, was the way that she was initially treated by a lot of the physicians that, that we saw. You know, I walked into the first uh, appointment that we had completely informed about uh, the type of cancer that she had, the type of mutation, uh, the type of medication she needed to go on, because I worked at an FDA regulatory firm before that. Uh, and her first oncologist, which we had to fire and get you know, another one, you know, basically was, was arguing with me as to why that wasn't a medication she should go on. Uh, and, you know, I looked up studies in terms of uh, other things that she should need. And uh, it was a very uphill battle. But I tell people that my mom is alive today, you know, three and a half years later, even though she had autoimmune encephalitis, it substantially affected her ability to, to um, interact only because I'm a doctor that wouldn't take no for an answer. Um, and that is absolutely not the way our healthcare system is supposed to work. And so what that taught me was that you know, we do need more tools in our healthcare system. We do need uh, patients that can have access to more information in order for us to make sure that people are getting the care that they deserve. So uh, that experience also inspired me to run for Congress because I felt that that, uh, that type of thing can be prevented if we have enough people uh, working on those types of issues uh, and trying to make the system better. You know, I get choked up too when I start thinking about my mother as she also was a person that was of great influence. I would say everything good in me comes from my mom. And in fact, I'm reminded of this uh, Abraham Lincoln quote that says, um, all that I am or I hope to be is all because of my angel mother. Herman, is there anything else that you would like to share in closing with our listeners? We'll definitely put up your website and your donation link. Give our final messages to physicians out there that are listening. Thank you, Rebecca. I, I'd say the final lesson are rather uh, things that I do want to make sure people remember walking away from this are we have to get um, in the fight uh, no matter what. And, and however that means to the person, like I said, 
whether it's fully engaging in your medical society, whether it's deciding to take a bigger role in the advocacy for physicians, you know, and I say that specifically, not for other uh, members of the team, but for physicians and for yourself. And then also take a, a very serious look at um, getting into politics yourself. Um, because unless we have more physicians that are doing this, they are not going to be people out there that are listening to our stories and our patient stories and why this is important. And I do ask people to uh, look at my link and I'll share with you my prospectus, um, as well as the, you know, the Secure Act Blue link that we have for donations, because it is going to take a heavy lift for us to do this. But I'm 100% doing this uh, so that we can do what we need to do for our patients um, and our profession. Uh, and I would love to talk to anyone about that. They can shoot me an email, uh, you know, if they want. I can talk to them directly. I'd even talk to them on the phone. But, but this is very dear to me, and I, I want to do this for us. Uh, and, and I thank everyone for their time and listening. Thank you so much. We absolutely wish you the best of luck in your run. I, I feel like you're going to do really well. And I, I really put a call out and urge all of our listeners to support Dr. Kermit Jones and his run for political office so that he can bring his experience as a practicing physician to the legislature. If you'd like to learn more about this topic, we encourage you to get our book. It's called Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare. It's available at Amazon.com and at BarnesandNoble.com. And of course, we would encourage you to like and subscribe to our podcast and our YouTube channel. It's called Patients at Risk. And if you're a physician and you'd like to learn more about getting involved in promoting physician-led care and truth and transparency among healthcare practitioners, we would love for you to join our group. It's called Physicians for Patient Protection. Our website is physiciansforpatientprotection.org. Thanks so much for listening. Before we end, here's a quick reminder. If you want to boost efficiency across your practice and make staff scheduling easier, try the Deputy app. You can try this award-winning technology for free by going to drpodcastnetwork.com forward slash deputy. That's drpodcastnetwork.com forward slash deputy. Thanks so much, and we'll see you on the next podcast. Mm -hmm.